it's now the month of Shravan. So I want to talk a little bit about what that is and why it's so auspicious and talk a little bit about Shiva's ecstasy. And then we'll start practicing because it's kind of the preamble for the kind of practice that we'll do today. And maybe even in some sense, the context in which today's practice, and I guess every Wednesday's practice lives. So the first thing to note is that um, in the Vedic calendar, the month of Shravan, typically July, August-ish, is the most auspicious month in the Vedic calendar for, in my opinion, the contemplation on the formless aspect of divinity. So non-dual contemplation, studying texts like the Ashtavakra Gita, the Avaduta Gita, studying the Yoga Vasishta, studying any Buddhist texts, like any Prasangika, Madhyamika texts, uh, any kind of void language, like that stuff. Um, in the Vedic calendar, this is the best time for it. This is perhaps second to only one other time, which is Mahashivaratri, which happens in the month of Magha, which is in February. So Mahashivaratri in February and Shravan, the whole month of Shravan, are the two times in the Vedic calendar where the perhaps because of planetary influences or what have you, the influence of Shiva is most strongly felt. So as you know, God is one, yet the aspects of God are innumerable. And there are some archetypical aspects, some kind of currents, um, or flavors, you know, Baskin Robbins 31, you go inside and everyone's got their favorite flavor. Some people are more devotional and they prefer God with form and other people are maybe more meditative and non-dual and they prefer God without form. And then, you know, each path like Islam and, and Christianity and all the different sects of Christianity and all the different types of Buddhism and all the different, all of these are like flavors, different flavors of ice cream. It's all still ice cream. It's all still made of the same stuff, but there are nuances, you know? So for those who are attracted to the formless aspect of the divine, to non-duality, to Shiva, this is perhaps the best month for it. And the devotion that you might feel for Shiva will increase a thousandfold. Now, another thing is that um, there are people who just like vanilla, just like mint chocolate chip, but if they eat it every day, they'll soon have an appreciation for ice cream as a whole. So if you walk any one path and you walk it sincerely and honestly, um, your spirituality will deepen and develop such that you'll come to enjoy all other paths, all other moods and all other flavors. So when you're chanting Hare Krishna, you'll be just as happy as if you're chanting Om Namah Shivaya. You'll be just as happy in a mosque as you'll be happy in a church, as you'll be happy in a synagogue, as you'd be happy in a et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, right. All 108 flavors. <laughs> Chandraji. <laughs> so. Of the flavors, this month is the celebration of the formless non-dual flavor that is typically embodied in the yogic tradition as Shiva. You know, so I want to say a little bit about Shiva. So Shravan, okay, mythologically speaking, this is the month where Shiva, the god Shiva, drank the poison from the, uh, the Ganga. You know, what happened was there's this big ocean and in the bottom of the ocean, there was rumored to be this pot of Amrita, this nectar of immortality. Now, all the gods, all the minor gods and all the minor asuras, they all wanted it. These forces of good and evil are now trying to get at this nectar of immortality, the truth, if you will. So they take this big mountain, the mountain at the center of all creation, Mount Meru. And this is probably in a mythological landscape. And they take Mount Meru and they stick it in the ocean and they take the big snake Vasuki and wrap it around Mount Meru. So there's this snake. And, you know, you'll see it in like um, the Norse myths too. That snake whose name I can't pronounce. Gaganagop, something like that. You know that snake? Um, that It's a very common motif in Indo-European traditions. Anyway, this snake, they take it, they wrap it around Mount Meru, and the devas are holding one side, the asuras are holding the other side. There's this Zoroastrian good and evil kind of thing going on, and they're both pulling, and they're both equally strong. The forces of nature, chaos and order are equally strong. They're pulling, 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 and they're churning the ocean, and all these things are coming out. You know, like uh, Indra's elephant and Lakshmi comes out and all this stuff is coming out of this ocean one by one and blessing the world. And finally, the nectar comes out. 
And there's a whole other story with that. But the important thing, important for our, our, our story today is the snake tears. You know, poor Vasuki. You know, he, like, <laughs> he tears apart and all his poison goes into the water and it pollutes like the Ganga, which is the source of all the rivers in India. It's like, think of it as the uh, uh, source of all water in the world. So the pollution goes into the water and now threatens, sounds like a comic book, I know. So it threatens to kill everyone in the world. Like all beings everywhere who drink from this water and depend on it are now going to die. There's poison. So all the gods are freaking out. Um, Vishnu and Brahma come together and they're looking at this poison water and they don't know what to do. And they're asking for help and nobody knows what the solution is. How do you clean this water? And so they go to Shiva. He, by the way, can't be bothered by any of this. He's typically to be found in the, highest icy reaches of the Himalayas, absorbed in non-dual meditation. He's so far beyond all things. He's transcended pleasure and pain, happiness and suffering. So he can't be bothered, right? He's up there, he's meditating. But there's some, Shiva, you know, as, as reclusive as he is, there's something about him. You can't deny helping people. There's a softness, a deep softness to him. And anybody who pleads to him, even demons, by the way, he's kind to a fault. So like in, in Vedic mythology, you'll see Ravana, there's a demon, prays to Shiva and he gets weapons and he uses it to tyrannize the world. So Asuras go and they pray to Shiva and Shiva happily gives them stuff because he can't see the difference between Asura and Deva. There's no duality in him. He, he can't differentiate between good and evil. He doesn't care. It's all one to him and he's kind to all equally. So they think, okay, well, if anybody can do this, it's Mahadeva the great God. His epithet, by the way, is Maheshwara, Mahadeva, the greatest Lord, the great God. So they go to him, his Godhead almost. And they come and they say, Shiva, you know, what are we going to do? And Shiva says, he's moved by so much compassion. He says, I will drink the poison. So he goes to the river and he starts to scoop the poison with a, a, a cup or his begging bowl, his bhikshu bowl. You know, he scoops the poison and he, in some stories, he is given the poison by his wife, Devi, who is not different from him, his consort, Shakti. She is the one that scoops the poison and feeds it to him. So in one version of the story, she gives him the poison. This is the more of the Shakta version. She gives him the poison. And as he's drinking it, she chokes him. Now, don't get any ideas. They're probably a very celibate pair, except in some places they're very orgiastic or whatever. Anyway, so he grabs uh, her, she grabs him by the throat and starts to strangle him. So the poison won't go down into the body and kill him. So in that version of the story, Shakta saves, saves, uh, Shakti saves Shiva. In another version of the story, Shiva saves himself. He drinks the poison himself. And then when he gets to his throat, he holds it there. And because of his yogic powers, he's able to purify that poison in his throat. That's why the throat chakra is called Vishuddha. Vishuddha means the purifier. So through the throat chakra, the power of speech, the power of language or whatever, he's able to take this poison and neutralize it. Um, however, he turns blue. So that's why that's his superhero origin story. That's why he's blue. They call him Nila Kanta. Nila Kanta means blue throat. And if you meet anybody whose name is like something Kanta, they're probably a Shaiva or a Shakta, like Kamala Kanta or, uh, you know, Ram Kanta, you know, that's kind of a Shaiva name, but his name is Neela Kanta, the blue throated one. So this month, Vedically speaking, is when that happened mythologically, right? So we celebrate Shiva removing the poison of the world with his yogic power. So this is the time when devotees of Shiva feel his benevolence most strongly. And it's a whole month. It's like Ramadan. It's like a whole month. Start, it started July 23rd-ish. And I think it's going to go till August 22nd. That's it, the whole month. And like in Ramadan, all spiritual activity is bolstered. Typically, people like in Ramadan will do vratas. They'll take vows. Like, okay, I'm just going to meditate three hours a day every day. Or I'm going to fast on Mondays. Or I'm going to, you know, this is a good time when people do that. 
Now, the next thing to say is Shiva as an icon is very important for our practice, especially on Wednesdays. You know, today and every week we do Hatha Yoga on Wednesdays. Hatha Yoga, as you know, is a tradition that emerges from within Tantra. And Tantra, as you know, is a tradition that emerges within Shaivism. Um, and then later spreads to Buddhism and spreads to Jainism and Vaishnavism, Islam and all that. But it, it has its origins in Shaivism. And so that's why there is the prevalence of um, iconography. Shaiva iconography, not just in the names of the poses, but in the modality of the practice. So in practicing today and in introducing the month Shravan, very auspicious time to start a new yoga journey, I thought I'd say one thing about the iconography of Shiva. Notice, almost unilaterally, Shiva is depicted as either dancing or meditating. There are two modes in which he's sitting still or moving. But in his movement, there is tremendous stillness. You know, when you see him as a Nataraja, his eyes are like super still, his face is super serene and still, and it's his arms and legs that seem to be moving. There's a wheel of fire around him, but he seems to be unmoved. He's centered in it. And then when you see him sitting still, there seems to be great life and vitality and dynamic movement within, unseen. So his eyes are usually fluttering in ecstasy. You know, you'll see the eyes are half closed and he's like blissed out. So I wanted to ask, why is Shiva so blissful? What is he so blissed out about? You know, seems like he's on heroin or something. And he's typically associated to the uh, uh, marijuana traditions. You know, like he's often seen as this like great marijuana deity. Because when people, you know, do a little marijuana, they're called Siddhi. It's called Siddhi in India. You do a little Siddhi, you feel this bliss. And it's like, you look at Shiva and you're like, wow, he's blissed out too. Imagine Shiva passing you the blunt. So, but is he blissed out on just marijuana? It can't be that because that comes and goes, it fades. It's nowhere near the intensity with, with which Shiva is blissed out. So clearly he's like this God of bliss and ecstasy. And we wonder why, what is blissful about Shiva's meditation? And let me propose this. We cannot meditate, most of us, because when we sit there and we close our eyes and we try to keep our mind fixed on something, the mind resists. It thinks of 101 different things. It thinks of the past, it thinks of the future. In the lecture that we gave two weeks ago, we diagnosed this as um, desirousness, worldliness, because we have plans, we have ambitions, we want to do things in the world. We're not established in perfect renunciation. Naturally then, our desires are going to cause thoughts and those thoughts are going to interrupt our meditation. The mind becomes scattered to the degree that we desire things in the world. To that degree, the mind will think of this and that right? So that's why Shiva is the symbol of renunciation because his renunciation allows him to find that stillness in meditation whereby he can focus his mind. That's the first thing to note. Renunciation is for Shiva in many ways a means to an end and that end is meditation. How does he achieve renunciation? It's with his third eye. So there's these stories where like the gods are trying to seduce him because only a child of Shiva can kill this demon lord, long story, etc, etc. But the gods are all trying to seduce him and Cupid, Indian Cupid, you know, Kama, the god of desire, peeks out from behind a tree and Shiva notices him trying to tempt him. The third eye opens and with like a cyclops, like X-Men laser beam, he burns Kama down to dust and smears the ash on his skin as a kind of fuck you to the gods. Like, nice try. You're not going to disturb my meditation with your petty lusts like that. You know, he's a badass. He's a master of his own mind, you know? So um, when he does this, this renunciation, this third eye symbolizes wisdom. So the wisdom is the discernment, discrimination. It's Shiva saying, okay, can I really find lasting permanent happiness in an impermanent world? It's him saying, I've satisfied lust and greed and anger before. And what good has it done me? Like that. He's doing this. He's doing this kind of reasoning, this jnana yoga. So he's discerning between that which is real and that which appears real, but isn't. As a result of jnana yoga, he's able to sit and be still. Now, why is he so blissful? 
We said before that if the mind is scattered, since the world is nothing but a representation in your mind, a scattered mind will naturally create a scattered world. So if the mind is scattered, what you will see through the lens of that fragmented mind, what you will see is a world of like strife and horror and uh, people being mean to each other and just basically not a fun time, right? The world will seem to you to be a very dark place. There's not a lot of joy and hope in it. And what joy there is, is fleeting, okay? So what happens though, if you change that lens, the framework through which you're looking? Um, Shiva does that. He brings his mind to a single point through meditation. And because of his one-pointed mind, it's called Chitta Eka Grata, one-pointed mind, the world appears to him to be um, non-dual. That's why you can't tell the difference between Deva and Asura, happiness and sorrow, uh, pleasure and pain. The, the dualities of life have merged into one unified tapestry. It's all one to Shiva. And we have to ask, well, why is that blissful? Arguably, we've all of us felt that when we become focused and we're having fun. You know, we call it a flow state. When, we, when we're painting, we enter into a flow state. We forget about the world and our mind becomes single pointed and it enters into that task. Musicians in the room know exactly what we're talking about, to be jamming. When you're playing uh, guitar, when you're playing piano, when you're singing, when you're painting, when you're playing, when you're making love, when you're doing anything that demands your attention fully, to the degree to which you can pay attention to it, to that degree, you'll experience joy, bliss, fun. We call it fun, you know? So if you practice today, ideally, we want that. We want to create this kind of single-pointed flow state in our practice. So the practice we'll do today is a flow. We'll flow through poses and all. And the idea is just become more and more absorbed in the practice. And when you start to meditate, become more and more absorbed in your meditation. When you're chanting kirtan, become more and more absorbed. And notice the direct proportion between absorption, single-pointedness, slash focus, and joy, bliss, and fun. Now, you've already had a glimpse of that, right? Extrapolate it times a million. Like, imagine what it would be like to achieve the highest expression of that flow state how blissful that would be. It would be a type of bliss um, compared to which all the other blisses of the earth would pale in comparison. That is the bliss of Shiva, the bliss of meditation. So we call Shiva the blissful one ever absorbed in the incomparable joy of Brahman. You know, That's how he's beyond it all actually, because he's just found a sweeter taste. He doesn't need to renounce the world. You know, the world has fallen away. He's just enjoying this joy of meditation. Uh, that's why Himalayan yogis here sit in caves forever. So it's fine. They're enjoying it. And if they're moving in the world, it doesn't matter either. Like the Nataraja, they're still established in that. You know. So that's, that's why we practice. We practice because we're trying to become absorbed in the practice for its own sake. But we also practice because it purifies the nerves. It purifies the blood and it purifies um, the, the, the mind. You know? So in one sense, you could say in a more immature sense of understanding this practice, it's a means to an end. Right? As Hatha Yoga Pradipika said, you do it, you get a purer body, energy is purer, you're able to sit longer in meditation. Good. Your end is meditation, your means is Hatha Yoga. Sure. Well and good. That's a means to an end. But as Jane and I were discussing on Monday, the more mature way to approach this practice is that it's an end in and of itself. You know, that it expresses a fundamental uh, joy, which is absorption. Okay. So that's all.